0: This is Africa Digest Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest You are listening to Channel Africa The voice of the the African perspective Broadcasting from Johannesburg We are on the frequency 9625 kHz On the 31 meter band to southern Africa And on channel 802 on the DES-TV audio bouquet I'm Tracy Bumgar, driving the show with Onele Nsintsi, Amanda Machaka and Mosibura Makura. The top stories on Africa Digest this hour. The media regulatory body in Burundi pledges to protect journalists. Newly elected French president undertakes his first African trip days after officially taking over the reins. In economics, the EU updates its air safety list of non-European airlines banning Air Zimbabwe from operating in the EU. And in sport, Pakamani Matlambi withdrawn from the South African under 20 side due to hamstring injury. But first, the news with Onele.
1: Thank you, Tracy. At least three people, 13 people, seven civilians and six government soldiers have been killed in an attack in South Sudan. The attack was carried out earlier this Wednesday in the town of Ye, southwest of the capital Juba, near the country's border with the Democratic Republic of Congo. According to the Juba government, the attack was carried out by fighters of the former Vice President Riek Machar, who had been roaming the streets of Ye town and its outskirts day and night. Hey, Governor David local reports.
2: Enemies of peace at 4.30 a.m. in the morning deliberately attack the position of the SPLA. The attack has caused a lot of panic. Six SPLA uh, soldiers casualties of this attack. I would like to assure my people especially in the town, the SPLA forces are in full pursuit of the attackers.
1: The Democratic Republic of Congo's new Prime Minister Bruno Chibala says he'll make sure he provides Congolese with the best elections ever held in the country's history. The newly appointed Prime Minister made the statement as the DRC Parliament inaugurated the new government described as the Governor, Government of National Unity.
3: I have to express the ambition, the will and the determination of the government of national unity to provide to Congolese people and on time the best elections of its history. But I need to emphasize that it's the electoral commission that's in charge of organizing elections according to the constitution.
1: Ugandan President Iwere Museveni has ordered the army and police chiefs in his country to stop torturing detained, suspected criminals. He says there is a risk of torture being used on entirely innocent people and of some detainees being forced onto false confessions to escape the ordeal. The order comes barely two weeks after suspects arrested in connection with the murder of Assistant Inspector General of Police Andrew Felix Kawaisi submitted court evidence of having been tortured associate director of african division at human rights watch maria bonnet
4: I think it's necessary, but insufficient. Uh, Clearly, torture is a pervasive problem in Uganda. Human Rights Watch and other groups have documented hundreds of cases over the last 15 years, at least. Uh, We've issued several reports that are quite detailed and looking at the conduct of very specific units of the police and, in some cases, the military. Um, And we've ourselves had meetings with President Museveni in which we have shared our concern for the ongoing use of torture. So I think there's no doubt he's been well aware. In this case, when images arise on social media uh, and also suspects were in court last week saying they had been tortured in a high-profile murder case, it's obviously increased some pressure. So his statement is good, but it is certainly insufficient. What he did not do was call for real investigations and accountability.
1: Hundreds of people living in Minnesota are expected to lose their temporary immigration status they were given when the Ebola epidemic hit three West African countries three years ago. The Homeland Security Department granted temporary protected status to about 5,000 West Africans in 2014, allowing residents from the most impacted countries to live and work in the U.S. legally until the outbreak was contained. In 2016, the countries were declared Ebola-free. The the temporary immigration status was originally issued for an 18-month period, but it got two six-month extensions, with the last one ending this Sunday. African Immigrant Services Executive Director Abdullah Kiatamba estimates that between 200 and 500 will be affected. And lastly, the French President Emmanuel Macron has unveiled a gender-balanced cabinet in accordance with an earlier pledge, with 11 of 22 new ministerial posts taken by women. The BBC's Mark Lowen reports.
5: Mr Macron has tempted two right-wing MPs to the economy and finance ministries, socialists to interior and foreign affairs, centrists to defence and justice, and even far-left figures in an attempt to bridge the political divide. A female Olympic fencer is the Minister of Sport, the Minister of Culture is a publisher, and a medical professor is now health minister. France's new president will hope his team delivers a majority in parliamentary elections next month and furthers his aim of political renewal.
1: Channel Africa News. I'm Onyinyan
0: This is Africa Digest. The media regulatory body in Burundi pledges to protect journalists and work more to professionalise Burundian media. Kalenga Ramadan, chairman of the National Council for Communication in the country, says around 1,000 media professionals have been registered. He called on journalists to support the CNC to improve their working conditions. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura.
6: Speaking to journalists during a press conference with them on this Tuesday to speak of perspectives of CNC, Kalenga Ramadan, chairman of Burundi's National Council for Communication, regretted that a public do not understand the conditions Burundian journalists are working in, he promised to do more to protect journalists and their equipments.
3: We're expecting to make very good work if we get your contribution, your support. One of the matters of concern was to issue the press card for those who are fulfilling the conditions required to have that card. Till today, almost 1,000 journalists and technicians who have already registered to the National Communication Council in a way of getting this press card or professional card. I would like to ask the media to work much more on uh, sensitizing the population even the public powers, to know better the requirements of the media. Many people, they don't understand very well the conditions under which the media are working, the professional working, a physical condition. The CNC, within this new time, will be working in protection of journalists and the equipment. So we will make sure that we protect much more the journalists as we did last year. We will make an effort to fulfill another dimension of our mission, which is to reinforce the capacity building of the media enterprises and the media professionals. Professionals.
6: Among the key duties of the CNC in Burundi includes granting a press freedom in Burundi and to facilitate professionals have access to sources of information. However, many see the 15-member regulatory body as a government tool to exercise pressure on the journalist as members are appointed by the president. Kaleng Ramadan calls on journalists to support the National Council for Communication to enable it not to be seen as the police of the media.
3: Finally, I'm asking the support of everybody in the media to make sure that the should not be continued to be considered as the police of the media. The CNC is the regulator. It's supposed to be in between the public powers and the media, between the media and the population. Our role and mission is to make sure that the freedom of press is guaranteed as the constitution of Burundi says.
6: Burundi is ranked 160 out of 180 countries in the 2017 World Press Freedom Index issued by Reporters Without Borders, four places behind, comparing to 2016 World Press Freedom Index that ranked the country 156 out of 190. The ranking has been decried by the Burundi National Council for Communication, alleging the Reporters Without Borders did not take into account positive initiatives undertaken by the government to ease the work of the media professionals. The media situation in Burundi has become more complex since the 2015 crisis as a result of the political instability and civil unrest triggered by President Pianconziza's controversial decision to run for a third term in office which he won in disputed election in July, as recalled by reporters without borders. Till now, three independent media outlets are still closed since the May 2015 coup attempt. Dozens of journalists fled the country and some of them are charged with being involved in the coup. Reporters Without Borders reports that journalists find it hard to work freely and are often harassed by security forces who are encouraged by an official discourse associating non-aligned media with enemies of the nation. Moreover, the disappearance of Jean Bigimana, a journalist who was abducted in July 2016, remains unsolved. Reporters Without Borders accuse Burundian authorities to try to silence and censor working media houses. The National Council for Communication says most of these accusations are exaggerated. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard reporting from Bujumbura.
0: At least 13 people, including seven civilians and six government soldiers, have been killed in an attack carried out earlier today in the town of Ye, southwest of South Sudan's capital, Juba, near the country's border with the Democratic Republic of Congo. According to the Juba government, the attack was carried out by Riek Mashal's fighters who have been roaming Ye town and its outskirts day and night. James Shimanyula reports.
7: Unlike other towns where fighting has been raging for more than three years, the town of Ye, southwest of South Sudan's capital Juba, has been relatively peaceful. People have been going about their daily duties without hearing gunshots, unlike other places where gunshots echo across villages and towns day and night. Yei is in South Sudan's Yei River region, close to the border that separates South Sudan and the neighboring nation of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Earlier today, Wednesday, residents of Yei woke up to a rude shock When bullets reportedly fired by rebels lured to former Vice President Riek Machar rained the area like rain thundering the ground. At least seven civilians and six soldiers lost their lives. One of the residents of Yei Makwei Mawel tersely tells us what he had. I had gunshots all over Yei, people all scared. I came out at around nine Another resident of Yei, Paul Ball, thinks that it is the international community that is in a position to pressurize the two warring parties to end the ongoing ethnic fighting.
8: The international community put pressure on the two parties at least to bring peace because the common person is the one who suffer in these situations.
7: Adding a rider to remarks made by the two residents of Yei, is the a. regional governor david lokonga who did not hide the fact that fighters loyal to former vice president riek machar unleashed the attack that resulted in the death of seven civilians and six government soldiers
2: enemies of peace at 4 30 a.m in the morning deliberately the attack the position of the spla the attack has caused A lot of panic. Six SPLA uh, soldiers are casualties of this attack. I would like to assure my people, especially in the town, the SPLA forces are in full pursuit of the attackers.
7: That was the regional Governor David Lokonga. Efforts to reach military field commander of fighters loyal to Machar bore no fruit, As repeated phone calls remained unanswered. In another development, President Salva Kiir has issued a decree establishing three units of the armed forces. Now the country will have an air force, ground troops and navy personnel. The decree comes 34 years after the SPLA was founded from a ragtag movement to what it is today by the late founder of South Sudan nation, John Garang. Abraham Awolech, an independent expert on South Sudan, briefly reflects on the SPLA we have today and the SPLA that was founded more than three decades ago.
1: The SPLA we have today is not purely the SPLA we used to have in 2005, where everyone was loyal, everyone had a common purpose, everyone cared about civilians, everyone respected their leadership and their hierarchy. I think there is a need to identify all soldiers old SPLA cadres, bring them together and organize them. When you organize them, you now start training the new ones so that they have the doctrine of the splm SPLA and that these are
7: soldiers that are friendly to civilians and that know how to defend the constitution. That was Abraham Awolich, an independent expert on South Sudan, reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. <laughs>
5: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Namu,
3: kwenye line simu, sasa, na Farafina.
7: Farafina.
9: Do soleil.
5: Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África a voz da Renascença Africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de
3: Johannesburg, África do Sul.
2: Socitika Mu África.
5: Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective. This is Africa
0: Digest. Today is Wednesday, May the 17th, the 137th day of 2017. There are 228 days left in the year. As we look back, today is World Telecommunications Day. It commemorates the founding of the International Telecommunications Union on this day in 1865. In 1978, South African police closed the investigation into the death of Black Consciousness leader Steve Biko. And that is our Today in History. This is Africa Digest. Newly elected French President Emmanuel Macron will be undertaking his first African trip days after officially taking over at the Elysee Palace. The 39-year-old's first stop on the continent will be in West Africa, specifically Mali, where he is expected to visit troops fighting insurgents in the country. France has been involved in the fight against militant groups in the Sahel region through Operation Barkhane Mission. Channel Africa spoke to Liesl Lowe Vaudrin, a consultant at the South African-based Institute for Security Studies, about Macron's upcoming visit and what it means for Africa.
10: It is a very important sign that Africa and security in Africa is important for France. Uh, Emmanuel Macron was only sworn in on Monday and within a couple of days he's already traveling to Mali. There are in total around 4,000 troops as part of the Operation Barkan, the anti-terrorism operation. Most of them are in Chad. There's also a big contingent in Mali. Um, That is really a follow-up on Operation Sarval that uh, went to Mali in January 2013 to fight the Islamist state there, and it is really a very dangerous mission. Uh, we saw even this week again attacks on UN peacekeepers in Timbuktu. There really is no peace yet in northern Mali, and even in the Sahara region. I think it is an important visit and we will have to see after that what kind of Africa policy Emmanuel Macron actually comes up with because it is certainly true that Um, it is costly for France. It's a dangerous operation as I said and whether France can still continue Uh, you know, almost going it alone and whether, you know, it might call on its other European partners in a bigger way to help with this anti-terrorism campaign.
5: Now, Emmanuel Macron's decisive win in the French presidential election has not only spurred enthusiasm in Europe, across Africa, where France retains huge influence in its former colonies, his election has been celebrated in the hope that it will usher in a radical change in France. African policy. Do you think Macron's visit confirms this view, Liesl, that we are likely to see a radical overhaul of uh, France-African policy?
10: It is very difficult to say because many French presidents have come to power announcing a radical change in Franco-African politics. Um, Nicolas Sarkozy, when he came in, in my big statements even here uh, in, yeah, in South Africa, there was a, a, a well-known statement that he made about withdrawing troops from the African continent um and that didn't happen in fact uh, François Hollande, who was socialist uh, after sarkozy he also said yes we all uh you know we want a more equal footing uh, relationship with our former French colonies and now uh, in fact France has more troops than ever before on the on the continent but it was almost due to circumstance uh you know the the if in Mali, the crisis there, um, and I think the wheels are turning very slowly in terms of relations with the continent, and it's got a lot to do with, I think, also the business links that Francophone Africa now has more and more with China and elsewhere, and um, it is, it's is—it's a slow progression away from what we saw uh, in the past few decades, the France-Afrique to this very close relationship between France uh, and Africa. But, but I don't think it will be overnight because one of the, the important issues for France is fighting a, a terror threat um, because it has obviously seen a lot of attack on its own uh, soil. So Macron I don't think is going to tomorrow pull out French troops from the Sahel. Um, That would be a bit of a surprise, actually.
5: But French troops have also been accused uh, of uh, meddling in the internal affairs of African government. Do you think France's days of meddling in African countries' politics are over under Macron?
10: No, I don't think it's over because the sentiment, I think, is basically France, feels entitled to metal because it is spending money and it's got troops on the ground. And um, It's not what we saw um, maybe in the 80s or the, the 90s of a head of state being threatened by rebels or threatened by, um, you know, his an own uh, internal revolt. And then France steps in and actually keeps him in power. That we saw many times in places like the Central African Republic, for one, um, where France was literally involved in either regime change or keeping regimes there in power, and it was very visible. And I made no excuses about it. Now it is really more subtle, but I think there is that. While while there is still a big presence on the ground, there is a the feeling of you know we're in there, we call the shots almost, but behind the scenes. And I think African leaders are more conscious than uh, of that than ever.
0: That's Liesl Lowe Vaudrin from the Institute for Security Studies on the land from Pretoria, South Africa, talking to Channel Africa's Kumbelo Munjalele. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni's ordered the army and police chiefs in his country to stop torturing detained suspected criminals. He says there is a risk of torture being used on entirely innocent people and of some detainees being forced into false confessions to escape their ordeal. The order comes barely two weeks after suspects arrested in connection with the murder of Assistant Inspector General of Police Andrew Felix Kawisi. They submitted court evidence of having been tortured. Last week, gruesome pictures surfaced of a town mayor with gaping wounds on his knees and ankles, which were said to have been inflicted by police. According to Maria Burnett, Associate Director of Africa Division at Human Rights Watch, While Museveni's order is necessary for the East African country, it's regrettable that it doesn't hold anyone accountable for the recent incidents of torture.
4: I think it's necessary, but insufficient. Uh, Clearly, torture is a pervasive problem in Uganda. Human Rights Watch and other groups have documented hundreds of cases over the last 15 years, at least. Uh, We've issued several reports that are quite detailed and looking at the conduct of very specific units of the police and, in some cases, the military. Um, And we've ourselves had meetings with President Museveni in which we have shared our concern for the ongoing use of torture. So, I think there's no doubt he's been well aware in this case when images arise on social media uh, and also suspects were in court last week saying they had been tortured in a high-profile murder case it's obviously increased some pressure so his statement is good but it is certainly insufficient what he did not do was call for real investigations and accountability
5: now you say that Museveni's directive is notable for lacking any call for investigations and accountability into past incidents of torture can you Give us a sense of how these incidents of torture were carried out?
4: There are many. The work we have followed over many years is cases of torture uh, involving. Two, two particular units. One is a, is a violent crimes unit uh, that started out being part of the military many years ago and then turned into a police unit. Over the years, it's changed its name and its headquarters location many times, but in our research, many, many victims have explained how they were tortured, beaten on the joints during interrogations over long periods of time, often held without charge many, many of them were never convicted of any crime. They were largely never even brought to court. Um, So these kinds of heavy-handed tactics are used, uh, we believe, to elicit confessions in most cases. It's very difficult for us to know what the ultimate objective is because, as I said, the cases rarely go before court. Um, That unit changed its name in 2011. It was uh, disbanded specifically due to human rights abuses, but again at the time, despite all of the outrage over the cases that we had documented Torture, there was no real commitment to investigations to root out abusers in their ranks. So we have seen that unit change name and continue to go on to torture more suspects. We have also documented torture during counterterrorism investigations in Uganda in the past and remain concerned for the use of torture in those contexts.
0: That's Maria Burnett from the human rights research organization Human Rights Watch on the line from New York in the United States. Talking to Channel Africa's Kumbelo Munjalele Africa is shouldering the lion's share of the number of young people who die every day from preventable causes. This is according to a new report by the World Health Organization. In 2015, more than two-thirds of 10 to 19-year-olds died in low- and middle-income countries in Africa and Southeast Asia. The latest data also shows that more than 3,000 adolescents die every day globally, translating to 1.2 million deaths a year. Dr. Mbola Simplice is a medical officer for Adolescent, Youth and School Health at the World Health Organization's Regional Office for Africa.
11: The top causes of death among adolescents and youth worldwide are as follows. The first one is road injury, followed by lower respiratory infection. And the third one is self-harm, and the fourth one is diarrhea. But the situation in Africa is different, because in Africa, the first cause of uh, death among the is lower respiratory respiratory injuries, from my diarrhea, and the third one is meningitis and the fourth one is AIDS. And now AIDS is uh, a big concern in the African region among adolescents because new HIV infection are increasing among adolescents in the African region while in the other group of population the trend of infection is decreasing
12: does where one lives doctor alongside their sex and age have anything to do with their cause of death
11: of course you know the place where we live can have negative or positive impact on health and the development of adolescent for instance adolescent in uh, remote areas adolescent in rural areas are more vulnerable than adolescents living in u- urban areas. Adolescents living in the context of uh, humanitarian emergencies are more vulnerable than adolescents uh, living in peace. Adolescents living in the street, living in prison are more, more vulnerable. Adolescent girls are also more vulnerable than adolescent boys because adolescent girls are more at the risk of violence including sexual violence as i said the place where we live have negative or positive impact on the health of adolescents notably in the african area
12: are there any trends in mortality and causes of death documented in this report that you thought were worrying
11: yes yes hiv and AIDS is now a matter of concern because new HIV infections as well as related deaths are still increasing in our region.
12: And why do we need to know the reasons young people die? How important is it for any country's national health plans?
11: Adolescents today are the next generation. We always say that adolescents are the generation of sustainable development goals. Adolescents are also agents of change, so there is a need, a great need, I would like to say, an urgent need to invest in adolescent health and their development. There are three reasons. The first reason is public health reason. The second one is economic reason. And the third one is human rights reason. Because investing in adolescent health now will bring what I call a triple dividend of health benefits for them into their future adult life and also for the next generation. That is why it's important for countries to put at the center issues related to adolescent health and their development.
0: That's Dr. Mbola, Mbasi, Simplice, police medical officer for adolescent, youth and school health at the World Health Organization's Regional Office for Africa. He was on the line from Congo, Roosevelt to Elizabeth uh, Ledege. Time now for our news headlines with Onele.
1: The media regulatory body in Burundi pledges to protect journalists. Ugandan President Yuri Museveni has ordered the army and police chiefs in his country to stop torturing detained, suspected criminals. And hundreds of people living in Minnesota are to lose the temporary immigration status they were given when the Ebola epidemic hit three West African countries three years ago. Channel African News, I'm Onil Nsensi.
9: Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world.
3: Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe,
5: this is Simon Muchemwa.
1: Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye
5: in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjore in Johannesburg.
1: Channel
3: Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze.
5: Reporting for Channel
13: Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa,
1: bringing you the African perspective.
0: The Heart and Stroke Foundation South Africa is challenging all South Africans to measure their blood pressure and know their risk for heart disease. This comes as countries mark the annual awareness campaign today, World Hypertension Day. Hypertension, commonly known as high blood pressure, is one of the most common risk factors for stroke, heart attacks and kidney disease within the South African population. In our weekly look at health issues, we focus attention at what hypertension is and the dangers associated with it with Megan Lee, a registered dietitian at the Heart and Stroke Foundation, South Africa.
10: Well, hypertension, also known as high blood pressure, is a condition where the blood vessels have persistently raised pressure, putting them under increased stress.
12: Now, with about 25% of South African adults being hypertensive, is this a great concern, you think?
10: Yes, of course, it's a great concern, especially because one in three South Africans 15 years and older have hypertension. South Africa actually also has the highest rate of high blood pressure reported among people aged 50 and over for any country in the world. Almost 8 out of 10 people in this age group are being diagnosed with high blood pressure and a shocking 1 in 10 children are already suffering from high blood pressure. So it's really a, a significant problem for us in South Africa.
12: Would I know if I have the condition? What are some of the common signs and symptoms?
10: That is the problem, so there aren't actually, for most people, there aren't really any visible signs or symptoms warning you that your blood pressure is high. That's why it's often called a silent killer, and that's also why more than 50% of people with high blood pressure are actually unaware of, that they have high blood pressure. And the unfortunate consequence of this is that many strokes and heart attacks in the South African population could actually be prevented if the undiagnosed and uncontrolled hypertension of South Africans was simply identified and then provided with the necessary blood pressure-lowering medication. So simply put, the only way to really have peace of mind is to just get your blood pressure checked regularly. So what is the
12: ideal blood pressure and what puts us at risk for the condition?
10: So the ideal blood pressure, so it's given two readings, so it's 120 over 80, so that's how it's given, that's the ideal. As soon as it goes to 140 over 90 and above, then it would count as hypertension. What puts us at risk is really very lifestyle related, so something like physical inactivity increases your risk as well as an unhealthy diet, smoking, harmful use of alcohol, being overweight or obese, stress and then having uncontrolled diabetes. So all of those are very lifestyle related and we really can control those So that, and they all increase your risk. So we all need to check where we can change our lifestyle habits.
12: How often should we check our blood pressure and where can we go to get this done?
10: Blood pressure should be checked every year from the age of 18 years and more often if you already have high blood pressure. So this May measurement month, the Heart and Stroke Foundation is really challenging all South Africans to measure their pressure and to get as many people around them to check their pressure too. So your blood pressure can be checked at your local clinic, a doctor, or a pharmacy. The Heart Foundation will also be conducting free blood pressure assessments within communities throughout South Africa during the measurement month of May. Listeners can go visit our website at www.heartfoundation.co.za to find more details.
12: Which measures have you found successful to encourage medication adherence and lifestyle changes to support lowering blood pressure?
10: Which measures? Oh, that's always a challenge. Yeah, I think the tricky thing is that people just need to firstly have their blood pressure checked. So people need to have their blood pressure checked, first step, and then second step is simply just going to the doctor to get the necessary treatment. And advice, and if lifestyle changes are necessary, then the doctor will advise. So the first two very important steps is simply just getting your blood pressure checked and going to see your doctor if your blood pressure seems high.
12: Just before I let you go, as countries mark World Hypertension Day, what should the take-home message be?
10: Okay, the take-home message simply is just to measure your blood pressure to know your risk for heart disease because it can happen to you.
0: That's Megan Lee, a registered dietitian with the Heart and Stroke Foundation South Africa, talking to Elizabeth Lidija. The spate of killings of women in South Africa over the past four weeks has sparked public outcry and anger against women abuse and how men treat women in South Africa. Following the killing of a 22-year-old Karabo Mokwena, a social media hashtag, Men Are Trash, saw women tell their lived experiences of abuse at the hands of men who were their loved ones and strangers. Mukwainer was allegedly murdered by her boyfriend. Her child remains were discovered in a shallow grave in Johannesburg. The death toll of women murdered across the country in separate incidents in the past month has risen to ten, following Sunday's positive identification of three more who were killed at the weekend. We are now joined on the line by Siphesiso Sami Dube, Alliance and Partnerships Manager at Genderlinks, a civil society organization involved in gender equality. Good evening.
8: Uh, good evening. How are you Tracy?
0: I'm very well, thank you. Now, the deaths of these young women in the past few weeks has once again resuscitated the debate around domestic abuse in South Africa. Is South Africa having the right kind of conversations around abuse?
8: Um, it is indeed worrying that we are having levels of femicides rising in South Africa, in the country where we have got a democratic constitution, in a country where there is all the necessary laws that are there to protect women. And indeed, uh this is a time whereby we have to take action, to have to take action against this abuse, against this uh crime against humanity and uh, uh Make a um, uh, corrective action so that that it can be peacefully.
0: Now, South Africa continues to have the highest rate of women killed, despite awareness and programs designed to clamp down um, on gender-based violence. Where's the country getting it wrong?
8: It all starts with the attitude uh, level at an individual. Uh, level or uh, in terms of attitudes towards the other fellow human beings, biased attitudes towards gender. If you look at the ecological model, we need to change societal attitudes from the individual to the community and then to the larger society. If we don't start with changing gender attitudes at an individual level, we will never get it right. So even if we do have the right policies, the right legislation, if we don't change attitudes towards Women towards, towards girls who will continue to have such societal ills. We need to raise awareness in the community by changing gender attitudes, by appreciating that the other person is equal as, as yourself, and by appreciating that everyone res, deserves uh, the right to live.
0: Now, Links works closely and in, um, in close contact with victims of abuse and gathers evidence to identify gender gaps. What information has the organization gathered in trying to understand how the victims end up in such situations?
8: Okay, we look at uh, drivers of gender-based violence. Uh, Mainly the the drivers of uh, gender-based violence, like I've already alluded to, are centering around discriminatory attitudes, which sometimes escalate to policy level, where sometimes violence is normalized. And then if a government is committed to end gender-based violence through the political discourse, that is, political statements, and through resources, then you find that at least there's some commitment to really end gender-based violence, and in particular, in this case, femicide, because this is now escalated to a level which cannot be tolerated in, in the whole society. But we also look at uh, issues uh, of changing the attitudes of the perpetrators themselves, we've done research before to see what really causes a person to violate another person through rape through uh, femicide and so on and we found that in four provinces of South Africa 40% of men where we did that research agreed to say uh, to say that they've violated an intimate partner so this is really shocking to say 40% of intimate partners have violated their their partner I think what, what we have to really look at is to uh, address the drivers, and these drivers are looking at legislation, programs. Um, we also look at uh, community mobilisation, and we also look at integrated approaches towards ending gender-based violence.
0: What does Links take on programs designed by both government and non-governmental organisations uh, in responding to issues of abuse?
8: Uh, We think even though the legislation is there, like we've got um, uh, key legislation in South Africa such as the Domestic Violence Act, we've got the the Sexual Offense Act, we've got um, um, uh, Prevention and Combating of Trafficking in Persons Act, we've got the Protection from Harassment Act, but what we need in reality is integrated approaches. If we have the legislation in place, but we don't have an action plan like a national strategic plan in place to say how are we going to translate that legislation into action? How are we going to enforce and make sure that even our police are educated on how to address issues of domestic violence, issues of intimate partner violence, even if issues of femicide, then we are not going anywhere even if that legislation is there because we find that many, um, many perpetrators walk scot-free from, from, from the hands of justice because there's not enough evidence or issues haven't been addressed adequately in terms of how uh, the victim or the survivor of gender-based violence should be handled. So I think we need a national a strategic plan on gender-based violence and we need really integrated approaches that will involve civil uh, society government even health centers as well as the police, in terms of addressing this uh, social ill.
0: How can the larger South African community get involved in ridding the country of this problem beyond social media campaigns?
8: I think um, it is time for everyone to speak out. If we are silent in our own small corners, it doesn't help the society, because injustice is perpetrated if the good people are keeping quiet. So it's time for the community to pinpoint those whom they know that they are uh, violating other people, because these people live within our communities, and they can do that while it's the other person is knowing. So I think it is important that we name in shame people are the uh, rot in our society, but we also have to raise awareness, to give out information on how people can um, report crime, such crime. Because some people are intimidated to go and report that have been raped. So we have to uh, raise awareness and give adequate information and, and, and counseling to say, this is okay, you can go and report your crime, the crime that, you, that uh, has happened to you, or you can report the person that you suspect is violating another person. But also, it is also good uh, to mobilize uh, the community and uh, make sure that everyone is aware aware and make a community dialogue around this subject. Because sometimes what we make is information at a community level. And then the role of uh, community leaders is also important. The role of uh, faith-based movement is also important in terms of uh, making sure that this kind of crime to not uh, uh, continue and uh, also the role of the government is critical because what politicians say out there is critical in terms of how the community takes up action. So it's important that there is a holistic approach around community mobilization, around w- uh, raising awareness, around pro- providing uh, resources and around mobilizing people against gender-based violence.
0: Sifisa Osami, thank you so much. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. That was Sami Dube, Alliance and Partnerships Manager at GenderLinks, joining us on the line. Time now for our economics update with Amanda Machaka.
9: Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. Good evening. South Africa's Minister in the Presidency for Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation, Jeff Khadebe says South Africa has not made enough progress to promote inclusive growth and to transform the economy. Addressing the National Assembly during his department's budget vote, Khadebe says the majority of South Africans are still excluded from the economy.
3: The economy is underperforming relative to its potential and this impedes our ability to decisively address the trio challenges of unemployment, poverty and inequality. The brunt of unemployment is borne mostly by our youth who are the majority in South African population. Ownership of the economy by black people as measured by shareholding on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange is still minuscule.
9: South Africa's uh, Finance Deputy Minister Fiso Butelezi has told Parliament that they are seeking a political intervention to recover mo- to recover millions of dollars trapped in uh, some African countries. Butelezi says the money belongs to SAA and it can help the financial struggling airliner with cash flow. The airliner says uh, currently its cash burn rate is about $19 million a month. Butelezi explains.
5: We mm. have
3: cash of about 1.05 billion rand in today's exchange rate trapped in many countries which we can't repatriate back to South Africa. Uh, amongst those countries will be Angola, will be Senegal, will be Nigeria, uh, and Zimbabwe. So there's, there's that man which is trapped there, uh, which does affect the um, the cash flows of uh, <coughs> Of, 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 the, of the company.
9: The European Union has updated its air safety list of non-European airlines, banning Air Zimbabwe from operating in the EU. For several years, Air Zimbabwe has not been able to fly into the European Union countries following their decision in 2012 to suspend flights to London over unpaid debts. Saman Muchema reports in Harare, Zimbabwe.
3: Other airlines banned on tuesday were made view nigeria Moski airlines saint vincent and the grenadines and aviation company yuga in ukraine the ban on the air zimbabwe to the eu comes at a time when Mugabe's son-in-law simba chikore is now the chief operations officer tasked with the turnaround of the ailing airline chikore is earning more than one million u.s dollars per month why is the airline is unable to pay debts of parts from the U.S. supplier?
9: Swaziland Tourism Authority says the Tourism Indaba Conference, held at uh, South Africa's coastal city of Durban, is key to the country's tourism industry, especially the small-medium entrepreneurs. Marketing manager at the Swaziland Tourism Authority, Bongani Dlamini, says the number of exhibitors invited to this year's conference has increased from previous years.
3: In our view, they appreciate what Indaba does for them and we are excited to see them busy engaging with other uh, players in the trade, with other players in the tourism space. We are hoping that they are sending out a message uh, to them that Swaziland is the best place to be.
9: And the U.S. dollar has fallen to a six-month low over the political turmoil involving President Donald Trump and the FBI. President Trump's election in November had pushed the U.S. currency to a 14-year high, but investors say there is now a growing sense of crisis alongside disappointing economic data. A former assistant director at the FBI, Ron Hosko, says the situation is shocking.
2: I think there are rough seas ahead for the president. And I'm, I know there are determined voices, some of whom were those who purely wanted to undermine and discredit his presidency, his election. But I think there are reasonable people, too, who are, have their eyes wide open. And if some of this is validated, I think this president could be in serious trouble indeed.
9: In our financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at thirteen twenty South African rent, at ten twenty four Botswana Pula and nine thirteen Zambian Kwacha. It's at zero point seven seven to the British pound and zero point ninety to the euro. In commodities, gold is at one thousand two hundred and fifty nine dollars and platinum at nine hundred and forty six dollars per ounce. The price of print crude oil is at fifty two dollars forty five cents a barrel. That's the latest business news.
0: Time now for the latest sports update.
13: Good evening, sports fans. I am Osibu Dimakura with your latest sports news at the SOWAM. And starting off with football news, Bedvets vets forward Pakamani Mathambi has been withdrawn from the South African under-20 side due to a hamstring injury he sustained while training with his club. His place has been taken by Ajax Cape Town defender Shojo Kamez, who's expected to arrive in South Korea tonight. As per the FIFA rules for the tournament, no player can be replaced and the squad without proof of an injury Amachita have 18 players in camp in south korea with bed vets right back Reef as well as supersport united midfielder tabu still to report for national u team there are three days left before the start of the 2017 fifa under 20 world cup south africa will start their campaign on sunday the 21st of may against japan and group d kickoff is set for 10 a.m south african time former Ghana captain Stephen Appiah has assumed a new role in the Black Stars backroom as technical coordinator. Unveiling reappointed coach Kwesi Appiah and his backroom team on Tuesday, the Ghana Football Association indicated realigning the role of a team manager into a technical coordinator and the ex-midfielder who captained Ghana at the 2006 as well as the 2010 FIFA World Cups, will be the first man to take on the job. New coach Kwesi Apia explained his vision for Stephen Apia on his new position that goes beyond the normal team manager duties as locally known, but will also require him to act as a scout. Kwesi Apia also mentioned the role could serve as a preparatory ground for the former Juventus player to enter full-time coaching, a career he recently admitted to considering. On to tennis news, Maria Sharapova has vowed on Wednesday to rise up again after she was told she would not be given a wild card for the French Open following a 15-month ban. For doping, The Russian former world number one had hoped to return to Grand Slam tennis at Roland Garros this month, but French tennis officials on Tuesday said she would not be granted a wild card for the event, which she won back in 2012 and 2014. The five-time Grand Slam champion was banned for two years for using Maledonium, with a penalty late reduced by the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which ruled she was not an intentional After the ban expired on the 26th of April, she returned to competition at the Stuttgart Open, reaching the semifinals and progressed to the last round of 32 at the Madrid Open, failing to earn herself a qualifying spot for Paris. On to World chair Tennis News, South African World chair Tennis Quad Acer Lucas Itola dug deep to beat former world number six Shota Kawano from Japan on Wednesday to advance the quarterfinal round of the Japan Open. World chair Tennis South Africa's public relations manager Anthony Moratani has the details.
5: South African Quad Ace Lucas Itola and uh, the country's leading women's player Hotasuke Jim who went to represent South Africa in the Japan Open have actually uh, 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 started their campaign today in, in Izuka in Japan. Uh, Lucas Settler duck deep uh, due to the high heat and extreme humidity uh, to beat former world number six, Shota Goana from Japan uh, on Wednesday to advance the quarterfinal round of the Japan Open in Izuka. The world number four had his back against the wall in the opening set but came back strong to defeat uh, Japanese 36646 Love to move a win closer to his second Japan Open title after he won his first title in 2014 against American world number one former world number one David Wagner.
0: This is Africa Digest. Thank you, Mosseboudi. Recapping the top stories this hour, the media regulatory body in Burundi pledges to protect journalists. Newly elected French president undertakes his first African trip days after officially taking over the reins. And that wraps up Africa Digest today from myself, Tracy Bumgard. Producer Leone de technical producers Fiso Mashiho and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. For comments on the show, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus 27-796-957-930 or you can tweet us at channelafrica one. Taking us to the top of the hour is Lohem Klaba by Black Coffee featuring Sipokazi.